This morning, I'm going to be talking about why we chant sutras, why we do some some of the forms that kind of appear kind of meaningless. Why do that? What's that about? And my goodness, there's so many different uh, forms that we do all day long that we repeat over and over. And that's the idea of forms. What we're trying to do here is we are trying to train our minds. Have you noticed how easy it is to get confused about everything? And maybe you might be someone who doesn't have too much trouble. But chances are, if you're in this room, something is not clear to you or you wouldn't be here. So for 2,500 years, Buddhist practitioners, students of the Buddha's Dharma or the Buddha's truth or awakened truth, awakened to what? Awakened to dependent origination, not separate. If you look at any one thing, you have the luxury of locating it as something separate, but it is fundamentally not separate from anything else that you can locate. They're called dharmas. As meditators, as people who are practicing some kind of a awareness practice or some kind of training, whether it's in the Buddhist tradition or some other tradition, whether it's in the Buddhist tradition, which has uh, not only Soto Zen, Rinzai Zen, all of the Tibetan, the four Tibetan lineages, and all of their sub-lineages, which just in the Kagyu alone, there are eight different uh, for the four great and eight lesser schools of Tibetan Buddhism. So there's all kinds of forms that have been set up. And you'll notice that other, even uh, the, uh, other religious paths, the, the so-called um, theistic paths, ones that, the paths that posit some kind of a creator or consciousness or a deity, much different than Buddhism. Buddhism, the Buddha was a man, not a deity, although he is quite deified in cases. But even those uh, traditions have very strong forms. In Islam, of course, I don't, I'm not a student of that, but there's five different periods during the day where they um, do a prostration. That's powerful, powerful uh, formal activity. And body and mind are not separate, but the ego mind thinks they are. This is why there's so much trouble in the world, trouble in our minds. We're at war with ourselves in a deep, deep down in our gut somewhere. Due to what? Passion, aggression, ignorance is rampant everywhere. And most uh, the, the, the way most uh, uh, mundane paths work with that is to try to cover it up, uh, eliminate it, justify it, explain it, pray for it to go away, pray for some other thing to come and help us with that. And I'm not here to promote or promote any of them. I, I trust you to use your insight, your ability, your presence, your uh, openness to see what is true for you and what it is that you need to do with your life. It may be, may need to never meditate again, and you may need to go into psychotherapy. I'm not going to argue with that. Go ahead. Or you may need to, you know, have a therapist, have a counselor, and do some other kind of uh, cognitive behavioral practices. Or, you know, there, as you know, there. I think I'm just in. I think I Googled them once four or five years ago, and there was 80 or 90, and I Googled them about a month ago, and I think we're up to 130 or 40 different ways of therapies. Again, not wrong. It's not wrong. People are trying to understand how to work with this situation we call a human life. And we've noticed some people just seem to 
you know, the so-called image of the silver spoon. We just we just get everything we want and we're happy and not much is going wrong. And if you run into those people, they'll say, what do you meditate for? Why would you do that? It's kind of a waste of time. And if you actually know what meditation is, you won't disagree with them. You'll just see they're just showing you their confusion. Anytime anyone disagrees with you at all about anything, they are showing you the way in which they are not clear about something. Just make them wrong. Because if someone thinks something is true, then they're not wrong. They're just, they're just thinking that's true. So, very interesting area and very subtle. Without stretching, training, exercising the subtle part of our humanity, which is called consciousness or awareness, without training that, we tend to be at the mercy of uh, our karma and the karma of the world, the cause and effect that's happening everywhere. We're, we're just at, we're at, the, at the mercy of it. From the time we're a year old, when people are telling us, don't do this, do this, do that, come over here. Uh, we get a little older, read this, memorize this. Two times two is four. And we get enculturated in so many different ways. Table manners is a good, good example. I don't know. Is, is anyone here uh, in the Zendo, uh, was, were they allowed to just eat any way they wanted to? Or does every, did everyone have some kind of form they had to follow? Is anyone here that just got to just, you know, eat with their hands out of a tin can? They want to. Yeah, go ahead. Eat that way if you want. You sit over there. <laughs> In fact, go on the porch. <laughs> and what am I getting at? Of course, I'm getting at how talking about forms, I, I would like very much, it would be a really strong desire of mine to not to get you to practice forms. That's that's your business, whether you do it or not, but to so that to help you become more clear about what it is. We just spent a half an hour, well, 20 minutes or so doing forms that are very old. They go back hundreds and hundreds of years. And the, the, the teachings behind them go back, of course, 2,500 years. And some people come in, eh, I don't want to do that. And they go, they're actually more attached to the form than the person who's doing it because they reject it. This is attachment, grasping. I love it. I want more. Give me more. Why is this all I got? And then there's, I don't like it. Go away. This needs to stop. I'm not interested in that. That's the other kind of attachment. So it is about seeing attachment. It's not about getting rid of it. If you get rid of the attachment, you're at, if you try to get rid of it, you're at war with it. Don't do that. Just observe, just like in the meditation instruction. It's just observe. Hold very still. Just observe. You're actually training your mind to just see what is true. To see what is true, not, not just some kind of universal truth that may or may not come, but just fundamentally what is true about your mind. When negative thoughts and feelings come up in your mind, what are those? And if they seem to not have any kind of a name tag on them, don't add one. Have a willingness to see what arises in the mind with doing nothing with it at all. So in, uh, uh, in our tradition here, we do uh, we come in and we do the Han and Bell, which is a, happens before each of the three uh, meditation periods in the day. A different sequence of strikes on the wooden fish and a sequence of strikes on the bell, which are alternated back and forth. I don't even know them myself. I mean, I kind of set them up, but I don't know how to do that. That's for you guys to do. I'm taking a nap. But I was doing a lot of really, really strong forms way before some of you even got here. But then what I want to bring up is uh, look at the, not that one. What I want to bring up is look at all the forms that we do that that are repetitive, um, washing the car, 
brushing your teeth. Every day you're doing form after form after form, setting down at the table, setting the table. There's so many different forms that are, I would call them default forms that just happen just by being a human being. Is that a bird? Squirrel. Squirrel. Oh, that's without something that moves without wings. <laughs> it was rather cute. Don't add your opinion to it. <laughs> I go ahead. So, so when we come in and do, say we do that, like we did this morning, we did the sutras, we stand, uh, we bow first, uh, we get up, we prostrate uh, a total of uh, the, the, the doshi or the person who's uh, making the offerings on the behalf of the sangha. Uh, to the altar. These offerings are not, you're not offering to some kind of a deity who's going to look down on you and help you. You're actually offering, you're making a gesture of offering or giving to your own Buddha nature. It's a, it's a kind of generosity that is uh, just the form of it. Other, other uh, spiritual paths actually may more, may add more uh, imagination into some kind of powerful being who is looking down, is going to save us. And we might pray to someone. Not incorrect. If that if that works for you, please go do that. I sometimes say to people who are Christian, I say, uh, if, if I were a Christian, which I tried to be, it didn't work. I tried very hard. I think my grandmother would have really loved it if I could become, become a Christian. I got as far as mem memorizing John 3.16, which I still remember. But I would say if that had magnetized me in some way, I thought this is the path I probably would have started memorizing something like uh, the book of Matthew or at least the Sermon on the Mount or something like that. So I would have that right at my, at the fingertips of my mind all the time so I could have that. And look at that. That's something that was translated out of what? Probably Aramaic as far as we know. And, you know, different languages. We don't even know. Nobody's around that was here 2,000 years ago or 2,500 years ago. So we don't know. But we do know that we have some confusion in our life. We have, a, we have and other people that we're with are suffering greatly in different ways. Either the very ordinary kind of suffering, which is death. It's very ordinary. It's going to happen to everyone. But when that starts approaching, it's like, uh-oh, that's coming. So the idea with the, the idea with the, just a moment. The idea with the form is to put ourselves in a form so that we can understand one of the profound teachings of the Mahayana, or of Buddhism in general, is and that is emptiness. Emptiness uh, outside the concept of em the concept of emptiness is sim simple. Uh, there's something here, but there's nothing right here. There's just well, there is. There's air or whatever. You could get technical about it, but there's uh, form and space. Form and space. There's form and emptiness. And bringing the mind, bringing the consciousness into that area with some kind of openness so we can begin to see what that is. We can begin to see how things arise in the space we call consciousness, how they hang out a bit, and then they pass away. This is what you're doing. When you're sitting down, you're holding this form, we call shikantaza, zazen, meditation, shamatha vipassana, shine and laktam, whichever tradition you go to, vipassana, just different forms of, of trying to see how the mind works, understand. Just uh, it's become popular just to do mindfulness. Some people, uh, Buddhist teachers, have eliminated all the forms. And these are people who may have gained something, may have had some understanding, maybe they don't. From my point of view, they are misunderstanding, as someone who's done a lot of forms, they're misunderstanding what the form is. 
they're trying to get rid of the belief part of that. But actually, forms are not belief. They're forms. So, Chazan. How do the forms train us? So the way the forms, Chazan asks how the forms train us, and the way the forms train us is through repetition. If you do, you could come in and do the sutras several dozen times, and maybe it just might, it just might irritate you. Because it's like, what does this mean? What is it? Or adding on. Here you're doing the here you're doing the form instead of just doing the form. Instead, we add on uh, something like my favorite thing to add on is I don't like to do this. I'm an old man. I've been doing this for close to half a century. I still don't particularly care for sutras. I love to listen to them if I'm in another room and I hear this happening. Then it's different. That's more romantic. But when I'm in here actually doing it, yeah, it's kind of aggravating. Especially if you're old and don't like to stand up for long periods of time. <laughs> Hold your hands like this. But what do I say? What do I say to everybody? Do it anyway. Please, do it anyway. Just do it anyway. Actually train your mind. A knife doesn't like to be sharpened. It'd be rather, rather be over chopping vegetables with its dull blade. This is what most human beings are doing, most of them. The way it looks. And I can't see every, everything and everybody. But it looks like most people are trying to make their mind work without even sharpening their mind. They're just trying to use whatever they were given and just trying to force it to know stuff. That's a very elementary and low form of knowledge or low form of understanding is just basic tit-for-tat knowledge. This is this. This is that. This isn't this. This is that. Even uh, physicists, if I may say so, well, physicists in the room, if I may say so, even physicists, when they go down with, with a mundane activity, go down into the physical world, start to, things start to fall apart and come apart, and they can't come up with anything that they can actually agree upon. Is that fairly close? Yeah. Yeah. So they have all kinds of what's string theory, and everything just starts to kind of get dismantled down there. And then when we get back up with molecules and atoms, and, oh, finally, you know, now I can sip my coffee on, my, on the coffee table without falling through the floor, because there's nothing there but air. So it's just a way of talking about it. Our very, the very tracks we use, the very structure we use, the very tools we use to go into something are actually compromising our ability to understand what it is that we're working with. Even, even math does this. I mean, it's very, we, we think, well, math is like cement blocks, you know, everything is always the same. Yes? How does seeing things deeply change our relationship to mundane activities? <clears throat> what begins to happen over time, if you if you just continue it, and you and you continue to practice, continue to stretch the awareness, continue to sit down, and continue to try to go into it rather than add to it. I'm not saying you shouldn't give something a name or have a name, but just be very tentative about the way in which you operate with names, ideas, analysis, judgments, and so on. So just by the repetition of it starts to show that everything arises in space. You can't have something arise in something that's arising. It has to arise in space until it doesn't. At some point, there are no two things anywhere. This is called a dependent origination, or what's the fancy word for it? Paticca samutpada. Paticca samutpada, correct. And incorrect. Anytime you say anything because of relative truth, it's both correct and it's incorrect. That's the very nature of relative truth. It's actually a pack of lies. But you have to, before we jump on board of that and say everything is untrue, we have to go into it and look and see the way it's, the, it's a setup for us to buy into this form. That's why this is not a mundane path like, say, psychoanalysis might be. 
but it is a spiritual path, which actually you're actually, it's like a, uh, it's like a, an anti-gravity machine that you actually start to lift off. Just a, an image, uh, just a metaphor for transcending this physical world. <coughs> Who's your name again? Junchu. <laughs> is what we chant as important as chanting itself? Good question. Is what we chant. Uh, so we, we need to chant something. So we have we have forms and we chant those. So uh, the uh, supplications and, and uh, chanting a heart sutra, form is emptiness. Emptiness is form. The same is true as feeling, perception, concept, or memory and consciousness. So that's important. And what we do is we say that over and over again. But it's the repetition of it and the space and what happens in the mind when you keep doing this. Have you noticed what happens to your mind? You, you do that, you know, you're, you do this just about every day. Uh, do you do this every day? Good. So you live here in the monastery. So that's why you would do it because it's it's a form, it's structured, and that's why it was created in that way so that so that someone live, who lives here can actually, you know, it's like getting on a, on a train. It's going somewhere. It's getting into a vehicle. You need to work with that. As long as you're in there, you need to work with whatever the the protocol is for that. So over time, you've been here a little over a year. Have you noticed how you, have your awareness has changed or not? Mm -hmm. One of the interesting things, a fellow a long time ago, back in the mid-70s sometime, uh, I only talked to him one time. His name was Richard Ron. I've never forgotten his name. He's quite tall. I think. He was like six or eight or something. And he was at, at the same... Uh, a month-long retreat that I was at. I think it was in 1975, and he was uh, maybe it was <coughs> it was 75, and he uh, he was driving me to pick up my van, which was being repaired, and I was trying to talk to him a little bit about the Dharma. We've been this was a silent retreat, so you didn't get to talk to anybody. So he was there. I got to talk to him, and he'd been doing this uh, probably six months longer than I had. And I said I asked him something about the nature of mind or identity or something. I just really was trying to understand, was confused about that. And he said something, I have to paraphrase because I can't quote him exactly, but he said something like, well, you're, since you're always yourself, you know, you aren't going to really notice any change. So that, that's always stayed with me. I've remembered, I've remembered that over and over. I've recalled that. I think about that. I often think about him. I haven't heard from him since. But you're always yourself. Your identity, because it is unreal, is constantly in flux. So it's the very fluctuation that we tend to attach to and get our idea that we're having this feeling, we're having that feeling, and this is caused because of that, and that's caused because of this. And we attribute, we attribute, we attribute, and we create this whole uh, what matrix of ideas, thoughts. It's called the seven or the eight consciousnesses in uh, in the Yogacara tradition. The five, first five sense fields, the sixth of thinking, the seventh of the ego mind, and the eighth of the storehouse consciousness, or the Ale Vijnana. So it's probably more complicated than that, but that's a set of concepts or forms that helps us take those forms and look at this completely crazy situation that we have found ourselves in, which is called human birth, and understand what the structure of that is and how that's working and why we tend to to go into things and go to war with some things and go to peace with other things. It's a very interesting area. Question. Question. How does um, the repetition of the forms, what is that training our mind to do? What it's training your mind to do is, uh, for one thing, if you do something over and over again, you tend to get a little better at it. 
But one of the things that you probably noticed is you is no matter how many times you do it, you never it's never the same. Every time you repeat that, uh, you could probably say that about anything, even brushing your teeth, which is something we do probably do every every day, every morning, every night. And you, it's always a little. There's something different about it every time, it's a, even though it's a form. So the awareness itself uh, uh, of the form, we begin to understand the way things. Uh, arise and fall in, in, in forms, and we begin to, over time, begin to understand there's no one seeing that. There's no solid one seeing it, and there's nothing solid that is arising. And so to do the form of holding still and watching, and then to do the form of getting up and doing prostrations, which in the Tibetan tradition are their emphasis on uh, creation completion, on doing really intensive, you know, sometimes millions of mantras, millions of uh, offerings to the mandala, millions of repetitions of the of, of Vajrasattva or Guru Yoga uh, over and over and over and over and over again, seeing that you never can really repeat anything. Yes? Is there a difference between um, chanting and studying the Dharma and sitting meditation as far as how it works with the mind? Yes. What is the difference? So which one would you like to hear about first? Um, well, could you contrast maybe the chanting forms that we do with our body uh, yeah. as opposed to the form of just sitting and looking at the mind. So when we're sitting and looking at the mind, we're just watching the forms that are spontaneously arising out of our karma, or you could just say out of our conditioning, out of our memory, out of our hope and fear. If you have hope and fear, uh, you're worried about anything, then things are going to come up. Thought patterns will arise about that. Should, what should I do? Should I do that? Should I? Which bill should I pay first? It could be something as simple as that. Can I get away with not paying that bill? We're going to get some money. <laughs> Private joke. <laughs> so, uh, whereas when we're practicing the forms, then we're deliberately going in and doing a form that has been set up, that's traditional. Even though we've modified it some, if someone came here from another temple, uh, even a Soto temple as we are, uh, they would come in and they would think, oh, we don't have a drum line. We don't do that with a drum. We do this or do that. We have this just like my son, who's also a monk, uh, lives in Nepal, came and kind of and helps uh, Shazan because he lived in Japan for a couple of years with his chanting forms. But yet he also has some other ideas about our forms, which uh, we're probably not going to take his advice. I love you, son. <laughs> but on the other hand, we do listen to him. We listen to we, you know, I'm very interested in what everyone has to say because... It's like a hybrid. I was trained by a Tibetan Lama and a, a, a Japanese Zen master. And so and I'm, I'm the son of two factory workers living in the same town I was born in. So it's a very hybrid kind of situation. Um, and what about the form of studying the Dharma? Why do we do that? And what is our intention? With that? So the idea, if, if you didn't study the Dharma, which some teachers say, oh, you don't need to study anything. You know, I have, I have a few students who have spent 20 years doing um, uh, Vipassana practices, which don't emphasize studying, or they don't take it away from you, but they say, you just need to train your mind to see. They don't, they don't work with the intellectual part of the mind. At least, I haven't studied that extensively, so I don't know, maybe there's something I'm missing. I could be wrong about that. But the way it looks is, to me, is the reason we study, what, eight hours a week, nine hours a week, uh, as a group, come together, take a particular dharma, Dogen, Dogen's uh, Shogenzo, 
the Sandina Machana Sutra, Lankavatara Sutra, Heart Sutra, Diamond Sutra, whatever traditional teaching is the support, the intellectual support behind why you would just sit down and look at a wall for hours and hours on end. So we need to know what that's about. So the ego mind is constantly chattering. I like this. I don't like this. I should. We shouldn't do that. They shouldn't do that. Why am I feeling this way? Why is she treating me that way? Why, why are they looking this way? Why can't I? I was doing really well for a while and now I feel like crap. And yet everything's going fine, but I feel... So what happens is the ego mind, uh, because of karma that is like... Uh, tributary streams flowing in the darkness. You cannot track down the whys and wherefores of anything. That's why I often say, and I'm saying now, don't ask why, ask what. You want to ask a question? What is this? Hold still, look at the mind and say, what is the mind? What are thoughts? Find out what they are. If you say, say why, it's just you might as, be, might as well be getting on a, a tilt-a-whirl or a merry-go-round or a ferris wheel. You're round and around. It's called samsara, the endless wheel of birth and death. We've all been doing it for till since beginningless time. Yes. I'll be there two more questions. One of them was, uh, so when we study the Dharma, is it about accumulating knowledge or understanding? It, it's No, it's about studying the Dharma. Because if it were about that, then we'd start ha testing everybody. And I would start asking you a bunch of questions about, you know, do you remember the, uh, the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, the Twelve Links in the Chain of Existence, and, and so on like that. And, you know, I would leave that... They're there for us to study, but I would leave that up to you. I don't know how big of a dose of these concepts you need, but you do. If you're in Japan, they would tell you what to study. If you're in Tibet, they would not only tell you, you would have forms that you don't have any choice about. We're in a different situation. We're in, I think it's still America, isn't it? Kind of coming apart at the seams here and there. But that's why I say train your mind. The most important thing you can do with your life is sit down, find out who you are, so there's no doubt. You have no doubts about it. If you doubt what this, what who this is, or why, why this is here, you've got work to do, or not. Go do something else. Start a banana farm. I suggest you go south. Maybe you can do something else. So, so, there's, so I don't want to interfere with anybody's the karma, the force of karma that is operating as your lifetime, and your your so-called choices. They're actually choiceless. You can't. It's like if you if you think you have choice, go look in the mirror. Give me one of your features you chose. You can't find one that you can at least remember. There are other kinds of memory than just that one, though. Yes? Uh, Shane from California asks, what is non-arising? It's when you look for it and you can't find it. It's like you're looking for a Christmas present. <laughs> That's specifically for Shane. <laughs> I'm not sending you anything. Don't neglect it. It's non-arising. So non-arising means that what... <laughs> non-arising means that what arises is not what you think it is. It's not arising because you fundamentally, pratitya samutpada, dependently, dependent origination, what the Buddha saw when he awoke, he not only saw suffering and the cause of suffering and the goal and the path, the Four Noble Truths, but he saw, he saw that everything was dependently arisen. And this was astonishing to him, I'm sure. And at the same time, completely ordinary. Because he also saw that everyone else has that birthright. Everyone else can awaken to the truth that he awoke to, but not without putting some effort into it. And that effort might be just sitting down, holding still. Don't take anything for granted. Don't believe it. Don't disbelieve it. Don't look away. Don't believe it. Well, this is true. Don't disbelieve it. This is not true. And don't look away. If you do any one of those three, this is called fixation. And this is also called delusion. And the opposite of that is non-arising. Yes. 
how you said that the studying as a group is not about acquiring or developing yeah. knowledge. Um, what is that interaction about? Uh, the way I like to say it, it's Sangha. It's the, the three, the three noble, three of them. Three noble. Three noble. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> What's the first one? Is a test. Pizza. Pizza. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. Buddha is the example of someone who is sane. That simple. And what do I mean by sane? No more warfare with anybody or anything. This is the Tathagata who lived 2,500 years ago in a physical existence, as far as we know. And the next one is the Dharma, or the truth that he taught, everything is dependently risen. And the third one is the Sangha, or the community of people that continue to come together and try to understand what that, what discovery that the Buddha, what he understood and was passed down through the centuries, warm hand to warm hand, all the way down. Can't learn this out of a book. You have to talk to someone or be in contact with someone who, who has been, who, who has had a teacher. I don't think it works any other way. Usually, there are a few people because of their karma are spontaneous realizers who just because of the, whatever ever is happening in this lifetime resonates with, with what happened probably, probably in a past lifetime and suddenly their ego shell cracks and they come flying out, probably terrified because without the training of what this is so that you can, you can gradually move into this kind of openness, that kind of openness is startling. And uh, quite often people will run and get medication. If you read the book by uh, Suzanne Seagal, is that how I pronounce Is it Seagal or Seagal? Yeah, so, so she passed away, but she did write a book uh, called uh, Collision with the Infinite, where she was just standing, I think, waiting for a bus. Uh, and suddenly her, her, self, her uh, ego form just left her. And suddenly she has just bare attention, just bare consciousness. But there was just enough of the sometimes referred to as the shrapnel of ego left to terrify her. So there, there have been no uh, progressive spiritual path of slowly working with forms, facing the wall, doing the sutras, brushing your teeth, walking down the hallway, getting in your car. All these are forms. And when you differentiate between the forms, this is called delusion. There's no difference between bowing to an altar and... Uh, frying a couple of eggs. This is called sacred world. Unless you see the, the world is sacred, everything, there isn't anything that isn't sacred. If you think there's some things are sacred and some things are evil, you will suffer and you will, you will uh, probably cause others to suffer, to suffer too from the point of view of uh, uh, cause and effect. At least you won't be helping them too much. Yes. A question from Sheldon in Union City. Sheldon. If the mundane, day-to-day -day things we do are forms, what stops us from realizing the imaginary nation, nature of self through them? Uh, you could, but you, the, the, we usually use that, like uh, when we're brushing our teeth, we use that as time to daydream. So whereas uh, when we're doing the sutras, uh, that might, the daydreams might also arise there, but it's, it's different because the sutras we have, there's some kind of special attention on the sutras. We don't see that the sutras and brushing our teeth are not separate. If you see that, that's, that's a, a powerful insight into the nature of form. We don't see that. We differentiate them. We think that there's what I do in my everyday life and my time in the monastery. Since you... 
when we relatively don't do well with the forms, yes. um, does that inhibit no. our practice? Mm-mm. No, that because that's awareness. It's awareness. If you're if you're practicing, you're thinking, "I'm not doing so well with the form." Either you don't feel well, uh, good about it, or you can't, you can't quite. You know, you go up, and every time you go up, the incense breaks. You know, I mean, things, all kinds of embarrassing things like that. You trip over your robes. Well, you you, you don't have a robe yet. I think yours is still being sewn. Is that correct? Yeah. And you do something foolish. Uh, that's actually a teaching. We, if we if we stumble outside in the garden uh, trying to walk across to feed the goldfish or something like that, we don't see that as a teaching. But if you did it in here in the context of this form, it would arise as a teaching because it would be it would be uh, bring up the self consciousness. Need to see that self. So that's why I sometimes say uh, that you know when people are meditating and they say they have a good meditation. Another day they say, well, I had a pretty good meditation. I had a, that meditation was really hard. I'm not interested in that. I, I would, I would, if I had a choice, I would say I would rather you have lots of bad meditations, miserable meditations. I mean, how should you, how, why should you have good ones? And I didn't, you know, I had horrible meditations, but what, what the underlying with me, uh, uh, the reason I'm able to do this is because of my, my guru. Trungpa Rinpoche, or my teacher. Without him, I couldn't have done this. I'm way too lazy. So, but because of his inspiration and telling me that I could do it, I, I'm still here. Yes. What about the form on the altar? What about it? What is that form? The chunk of wood. The chunk of wood. Yeah. What else is it? It is the Buddha. Okay. What else? It is a two words. This is not a peace sign. This is a peace sign. That that's not separate. <laughs> it has something to do with mm. not separate. Something to do. Yeah, I was not separate. Say that. We're not separate. Not separate. From, we're not separate from it. Okay, good. <laughs> Jesus. Uh, you didn't finish talking about the Sangha as the third Thanks. refuge. <laughs> What should I say about it? Well, you were talking about it in the context of why we study together. Yeah. So the idea, Chazan's reminding me uh, that I didn't mention anything about us, the third of the three refuges, which is the Sangha. And that's uh, could be the most important uh, if you're going to do that. I mean, it's, it's important. I think the reason I say it that way is quite often it's ignored. Sometimes people just read books and study and meditate by themselves. And uh, not that it couldn't work. I'm not saying that that's wrong. If somebody wants to do that, again, I wouldn't interfere with them, try to change them. I would appreciate that they're doing what they need to do. I would mind my own business. But if they come this direction, then this is the way I would, because I've been taught this way. So I would teach uh, someone else by saying the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, the three jewels, we take refuge in those. So the third one is the community of people who are trying to understand this teaching. And so when we gather around the, the table there in the center of the, of the Zendo every day at noon, that session is called Footsteps, study these different sutras and have a discussion about them. It's, very, uh, it's a very powerful uh, awareness practice because it puts us with people that we also eat with. Sometimes uh, here at the, in the monastery, we, anyone who's, who lives here, we have our evening meal together as a community. And also we do uh, 
the orioki, which is the, the stylized way of eating with three bowls, chopsticks, and, do, and having a, a very formalized way of doing that, and, uh, and also engaged with a, a meal chants or sutra chanting. And so, and it's very much uh, by the numbers. Another way of having community, eating, and bringing all those things together. So uh, acknowledging other people and noticing the way other people, their understanding as far as uh, say, everything is dependently risen. We're talking about that. or We're talking about suffering and the cause of suffering and studying with someone else. Uh, we realize that their understanding is, is not incorrect, but it may be different than ours. They may have a different take or a different way of understanding that. Um, we, we don't really go into correct and incorrect so much as uh, the teachings are meant to, to help us access the true nature of who this is and what everything else is. Everything is dependently arisen. So it's not to the two-ness is imputed by the mind that is operating out of hope and fear. The mind or the, the so-called discontinuous identity that keeps wanting to have success and keeps avoiding failure or wants pleasure wants to avoid pain and doesn't see that they, they are not separate. Separated, yes. We can. That's the confusing part. They're separated and we want one of them. We don't want the other one. The nature of the mind, the nature of ego is to do this. Even in little simple areas like sitting, sitting meditation and feeling that desire to have a good meditation, it's pleasant. Rather than, that's like walking on a treadmill and wanting to enjoy it. Not going to happen. Uh, we have to stop. I'll take one more and then we'll stop. Go ahead, Michael. Make it make it a real short. What is the repetition? Most of these forms, there's a lot of yes. repetition. Why is there repetition? So you could uh, one is to see that you can't really repeat anything. So, but you have to do a lot. You can't do just a few dozen. You have to do a lot of them, and you have to notice your irritation around it. You also uh, are doing it, and you notice someone else is doing the form a little bit different, and you think maybe it's incorrect, or or else you notice that that somebody's when somebody is uh, is the the doan or the chant leader, like Chazan. You know, I'm sure everybody's very critical of the way he enunciated. I know I am. <laughs> you can't wait to push those buttons on those recorders. <laughs> I was yes. also wondering about the boredom of them, though. Yeah, that's boredom means you've, you're giving up on entertainment. The downside of boredom is boring. But the upside is you're actually willing to hold still and not go out and deliberately have a pizza, turn on the TV, get on the computer, get on Facebook, which is pretty boring, too. But, you know, you're, you're actually willing to hold still and watch the boredom. Uh, as Trump Rinpoche once said, Hot boredom is the beginning of meditation, and eventually it becomes cool boredom, or just just like a uh, a stream that just slows down, slows down. The speediness starts to uh, lessen. Thank you so much. I'd also like to remind everybody about the donation boxes we have in the hallway. We are a five hundred one c three, so your donations are tax deductible. Please help us as much as you can. May it bear this kind of drink to all places so that we in every sentient.